Beth Angstadt. And I'm Sue Miller. And this is the Collective Creamery Podcast, where we're crafting the conversation on American artisan cheese. Sue, what a weekend we've had. Yeah, we've been traveling the roads of New England, hunting down cheesemakers, and we've had an amazing group of interviews that we'll be working on bringing to you soon. We followed up with Orb Weaver, hearing what they're up to over in New Haven, Vermont. And we've got some others. We've got some sheep sheep talk coming your way. So stay tuned for some future episodes. Because we've been traveling, we weren't able to bring you a new episode. So we're pulling one back from the archives, an interview that we did about a year ago with Sean Fitzgerald of Cherry Grove Farm. And for those of you who listened to our most recent episode with Paul Lawler, they both run the creamery at Cherry Grove Farm. And so this is a a way for you to uh, recall that conversation and get the other half of the picture from Sean's perspective, the artist's perspective, about making cheese at this operation, milking beautiful Jersey cows on pastures in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. So we hope you enjoy the episode. And just a reminder um, that our shares are live. They're now open for the summer, spring and summer season for our cheese CSA. So join our farm family. We are one of the few women-led, producer-owned cheese subscriptions on the east coast we're really proud of that and there's no better way to explore the regional cheese scene and also support your local food producers directly so if you want to learn more about that we're at collectivecreamery.com you can subscribe to your share that way and maybe share it with a friend and we hope you'll join us this summer for a season of cheeses Actually, this is weird because it was feels like several lifetimes ago, probably for both of us. Hmm. But I actually met Sean in like 2009 yeah. or something. That's right after I moved to Philly, actually. Yeah, yeah uh, like through Friends of Friends. And then years later, I found out that he was like looking to become a cheesemaker, mm-hmm. which is so exciting to know that somebody before I was even really involved in yeah. cheese. So yeah, full circle. Well, yeah, definitely. Welcome. welcome. And Sean. it's important to note that real cheese is being made. In New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for saying that, Sue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Sean, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into cheese? I don't know. I'm still figuring that out, honestly. (laughs) Um, Because, I mean, I went to school for photography and then I went to grad school for painting. I studied abroad in Italy for a year. So I feel like that was a very formative, like step towards a deeper appreciation of food, where it comes from, how it's made and who makes it. Definitely ate a lot of cheese there. That was awesome. And when I came back, well, after grad or undergrad, actually, I uh, got a job serving at Tria, the restaurant. Oh, what a good proving ground. Yeah. That kind of solidified my interest in anything relating to fermentation. But then after that, I started working at the Bruno Brothers, which was great because I got to learn a lot about different cheeses from all over the world. And I don't know, I guess the artist in me really just wanted to use my hands again. So rather than selling cheese, I'm making cheese. Mm. Yeah. 
a long, a long journey. So and that, if you're not from the Philly area, like the pedigree that Sean just described is like a very good one in terms of getting <laughs> into a cheese career. <laughs> Tria is a wine, beer, and cheese shop uh, or wine, beer, and cheese restaurant, cafe, mm-hmm. fine dining. That's really amazing. And De Bruno's is, of course, like our cheese destination here in Philly. Jesus. I love going into Tria on Sunday for Sunday school. Right, yeah. You know, there's a special. They have a beer, a wine, a cheese. They're like $5 each. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're deeply discounted. Yeah, I would roll in on Sunday after market, drop off some cheese <laughs> and sit at the counter. You earned it. Yeah, and it was just so great to be exposed. You know, here in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. we can become kind of insulated from the world. So for cheesemakers, it's really important to get out there and experience this uh, the the wealth of riches Mm-hmm. produced in the world. And so for you coming to um, cheese making through Tria and De Bruner Brothers, I think that's really wonderful. You had this frame of reference. Yeah, totally. Of flavors. I mean, I, a little bit earlier, Sean was talking about the rind, has a little Marcona almond <laughs> to the rind. I thought, there we have it. I yeah. love talking with people about rinds. <laughs> me too. Rind is a very uh, passionate subject for me. So tell us about that. What's your, okay, so what's your uh, sort of rind philosophy? What are the favorite rinds that you've tasted and created and well, how do you approach it? Um, let's see. I mean, I think my favorite, okay, so I have two different, two favorite rinds, probably. Um, I love anything washed rind because, well, I mean, just the act of creating a washed rind to me relates a lot to painting um, mm-hmm. because you're actually like smearing this stuff around um, and it's very tactile and stinky and lovely, kind of the way that oil paint is. Um, but I also really mm-hmm. like just wild, like tome rinds, you know, where you just let whatever wants to grow, grow there. And like I a, think, like a Tom de Savoie. Yeah. Or like Tom, Tom de Creuse oh, or something that like that. that it's amazing rind. Rind, <laughs> rinds are really beautiful, not only aesthetically, but also, I mean, the way that they influence the flavor and the character of the cheese, I think is really amazing. It's safe to say you're a rind eater. <laughs> oh, it's definitely. <laughs> Pretty much everybody at this table today in this podcast is a rind eater. I Absolutely. need to throw in an aside because I was at an event for Instagram influencers the other night <laughs> at Dock Street Cannery in West Philly. It was kind of this, this like private event and they've been buying some of Steph's cheeses, Renata, who works there um, and manages their events and marketing. It's like they're, you know, her whole family is involved in the business and it's in my neighborhood. So it's a really great place and they make amazing cocktails. They have like a new bartender from San Francisco. But I, I so I'd set up a cheese board. The other two businesses were there were vegan, which was like I was a little, I was a little taken oh, aback by. But I mean, it, you know, we, hit all, we hit all the uh, hit all the bases. But I was like standing by the cheese board, and you know, people were taking pictures of it. But I was like, no, just like you know, eat it. It's fine if you like mess it up. It's okay because um, of course everyone was Instagramming. But there was just this. We had some Fat Cat and some Bertram Blue, mm. and there was just like that like, oh, the frame of wine left. And I was like explaining to some people. I think actually there was a distiller there, and I was like, look what people did. <laughs> like they didn't eat the Right. I'm like, God, it's ready to thread. You know, it's, and just hearing you talk about this, I'm always like the, you know, the cheesemaker like made, really made a point for the Ryan, like, you know, unless it's, unless it's super hard aged or covered in wax, the yeah. cheesemaker really made a point to cultivate this rind for like all of its different like attributes. And you should, if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it, but you should always taste it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's actually something we would say that would come up a lot at Tria and a lot at De Bruno Brothers too, when, I mean, you're handing out these samples to people. And of course, I mean, like in our culture, we're just kind of used to or accustomed to being sort of afraid of mold and things that are kind of wild because we were taught not to eat them. 
But just like you said, like the cheesemaker actually worked extraordinarily hard to cultivate that particular rind. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you should try it unless it's like wax or something incredibly hard, like a Parmesan or something. Then I would save it for soup. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Or for yeah. Rochefort. Yeah, for yeah. Rochefort. Yeah. yeah. Is there a time when you just won't eat a rind? I won't eat the rind of stinking bishop. But I won't eat stinking bishop either. Right. There you go. There you go. No, I I mean, I always, I try anything. I'll try anything once or twice, but not three times. Not three times. (laughs) I love that. We all took a moment there to process. I think, I mean, if something is really kicking, like, um, if you have a super overripe wheel of something, sometimes the only way to salvage it is to maybe... Pull some of that off. Yeah, Yeah. I I think I think Steph would just be like, I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. (laughs) The way that she's looking at me. No, no, I completely (laughs) agree. I mean, hey, if a rind is really intense, you know, I might not eat all of it, but I always will taste a few nibbles of it, and it's kind of a bonus because you get two tasting experiences Mm -hmm. in one. Hey, when you, when I see those, what do they call it? Yellow flowers Mm -hmm. under like a tom crease, I step back. (laughs) I am not ashamed to say that is one (laughs) moment where I step back because it is like searing, ammoniated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, I always think that though, that is really important to the process of that cheese. Mm -hmm. So I never want to disregard the rind. I think it's part of the story of the cheese of the paste underneath. Totally. Mm -hmm. So that's where I am on that Mm -hmm. hardcore those yellow flowers. They're like soft pudding, like they're, they're kind of, I'll admit they are kind of scary. They're, they're like fluorescent yellowish color. (laughs) Well, I learned, someone told me once that if there's like, which I I think I, I, at the time I was like, Oh, okay, I get this. And I'm like, well, that's like not a hard and fast rule, but if there's red or yellow or black, you don't want to eat it. But like if there's blue or green or mm-hmm. white or pink, then it's say as from like a food safety perspective. Right. I don't feel like I would ever be hurt. I don't think that Tom Crease rind is it's at all harmful at all. I think no. it's hundred percent safe. Yeah. And I, I would I would consider it safe. I just don't consider it appealing. I see. Mm-hmm. Right. And Not how, like the appealing lines we, we have today. I, I think that brings up a good question that we were just mentioning earlier, which is, you know, how do we as cheesemakers and mongers educate people about what is acceptable and how do, how do we start that conversation with our customers at the farmer's markets and our CSA members? This because- is our ongoing conversation of American cheese at the table, like how we're going to grow that. Exactly. We started yeah. a podcast. Yeah, hmm. exactly. And I think it was, um, I think I saw it maybe once from the sellers at Jasper Hill that there was a sticker that said, I'm okay to eat. And it yeah. was a little bit right. of the cat hair, a little bit of the um, mucor mold and right. that. And it was nice that there was a sticker that said, it's okay. This is going to show up and it's edible. Yeah. Totally. Or you can scrape it off, but don't waste it. This is part of the process. Or like, exactly. I'm supposed to be funky. They do that at um, the Middlebury Co-op. Okay. Um, I'm and I, to be funky. I really liked, they, they, yeah, they're just kind of like, oh, like look for this in this cheese. And they're starting to use those things that might scare people off as mm-hmm. like a marketing tool. Yeah, totally. I think it's really important, especially now that more people are consuming like artisanal cheese. It's it's sort of our responsibility as cheesemakers or people who work at a a farm, like uh, mongers and stuff to like educate people, tell them, you know, it is okay. Um, It is supposed to be there. I was reading, I forget what book, but they were talking about traditional bloomy rind cheeses and how like Brie, Desmond, and stuff like that. Originally, they didn't have these like pristine, pristine white, <laughs> white, 
fluffy rinds. Like they, they were modeled and they were supposed to be. And that was mm-hmm. an indicator of quality and like a, a sincere actual product. Mm-hmm. In my mind, anybody worth their weight will go for the brie that has a little bit of bee linens underneath. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's where the passion of the milk. Is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the so beta carotene. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, yeah. what do you, how does it feel for you being out there in New Jersey where there's so few dairy farms left? Um, and actually, New Jersey has such fertile soils. I mean, it is called the Garden State. Mm-hmm. So there's been a mass exodus of dairy farms there. What is the landscape like for, for Cherry Grove in finding its place? Is it the, a fact that, hey, there are so few dairy farms that people really want to support it now? Mm-hmm. Or do you feel like you're out of the infrastructure and that has some issues for you in operation? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the the fact that the taxes are so like prohibitively high in New Jersey, that's probably why there's like few and fewer dairies there. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm kind of lucky in, in that I, I mean, Cherry Grove has been around for like 10 years and I've been there for like two, two and a half. So there was already kind of like a built-in consumer base. Like people knew. But that products. property had been in the family for oh, generations forever. before. Yeah, absolutely. Until they thought, what are we going to do with this land? Yeah. Oh, so they went right to let's do something value added and educate the consumer. Yeah, totally. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And good thing they did too, because I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful property. Um, the area around there is beautiful too, but it's just like there, it, it's there, it's developing very quickly. And mm-hmm. so I'm glad that the family that owns the farm, the Hamels, did not, are, they're not selling out to like developers, you know, mm-hmm. they're just like holding strong and it's an awesome farm. That's great. Yeah. That's so great to hear. And you have just had an event out at the farm. Didn't you have the heifers strolling? Oh, yeah, the cow parade. <laughs> the cow parade yeah. right in New Jersey. Yeah, it's meant to bring like a little bit of uh, the idea of transhumanance like to New, New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. Which oh, is I, that's beautiful. Funny. So and, what's the event? Well, we um, so we have it's well, it was uh, a couple months ago. So it's a very like autumnal event. Um, everyone hangs out outside. We have a bonfire, uh, local vendors, food. Um, booze and stuff like that but the main attraction is we literally parade the cows like through the fields and kind of dress them up and some people with fiddles and stuff follow behind and it's just a fun time oh i love it Mm -hmm. honor the cows yeah i was at i think it was around we're in january right now it was around this time of year and i saw the event pop up on facebook again but it was years ago and I was up in that area, maybe visiting Cherry Grove or doing something in that mm-hmm. Princeton area. And I went to Terhune Orchards and they mm. were doing their wassailing, which has also has like a very sort of like throwback wicker man. Wait, I'm not familiar with that. What is that? It was, it's where they go. I guess it's a tradition where you would go and like offer bread to the apple trees to like hope that they come back and have a good harvest the next year. But it was very like, it was like, here's cider donuts and like kids (laughs) games. But then also like, here are people doing like a circle dance. And it's almost paganistic in a way. So that's kind of, it's interesting that that's happening up there. And, um, we mentioned that Cherry Grove is in Lawrenceville, but this is like right by Princeton. So if you've ever yeah. driven, if you're in the Philly area or New York area and you've ever like driven back and forth, there's a really cute, like it's kind of a long cut probably, but there's a really cute long cut that you can take where you drive past this like really pretty 
sort of farmland in the north central Jersey area. And you go like right by Cherry Grove. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. Um, and it's really beautiful. And in, in addition to obviously being really close to a market, that's great for you mm-hmm. uh, with Princeton and New York and Philly. Yeah. Yeah. I always elect myself to uh, do the local deliveries so that I can just sit in the van and drive around beautiful New Jersey for a couple hours. Just to be connected with the customers is really important too. I think that as cheesemakers, it's really a lovely interaction when we have the opportunity to hand the cheese off to the shop owner, the Mm -hmm. chef, Mm -hmm. the consumer, whoever's eating it. And, you know, you get this positive feedback and it's about relationships and, Mm -hmm. um, I'm so glad that you get to go out and do the deliveries. Me too. I mean, even negative feedback is good. We spend so much time like in the caves, you know, with our nose to the wheels of cheese, just like scrubbing them and making the rinds nice and making cheese. It's nice to get out and actually talk to the people who are consuming our products. Yeah. So for those listeners who aren't as familiar with Cherry Grove Farm, can you give us a snapshot of the farm? What What about the animals? What, what's their feeding program? Yeah, like? totally. I mean, um, we so we're farmstead. So all of our milk comes from our own cows. It's primarily Jersey, but it's a little bit mixed here and there. Um, we, yeah, mo- almost always grass. Uh, most of the cheeses we do are raw, with the exception of Trilby and the uh, Buttercup Brie. But we also do other things in addition to cheese. We have chickens, we do meat, we do eggs, and we have a little farm store and stuff too where we sell local products. Uh, we do our own honey, which is super delicious. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty much... Yeah, that's it. Okay. How many, how many acres is the farm? I believe the farm in total is about 302 certified, 302 acres certified organic. Wow, that's oh, I didn't know you guys were Yeah. There's great. also, they lease some land to what's called Cherry Grove Organics and they oh. do like vegetables and stuff and it's a CSA. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's great. Um, what a beautiful part of the country to be in. I think that New Jersey often is the butt of jokes. <laughs> But when you drive up through that area, mm-hmm. it's breathtaking. It really is pretty. Yeah, I was just up there uh, not that long ago and did a couple little visits in Lawrenceville. And I thought, what a cute little town. <laughs> and that's where those, uh, what's the cookbook women? Canal House folks are from oh. Lawrenceville. Oh, oh, you need to hook up. I didn't know You that. need to meet up with them. Cool. Check them out. The I Canal will. House. Canal House Cooks. And Sean, can you go over the what what lineup is Cherry Grove making right now? You mentioned the Buttercup Brie, which is just like a super accessible standard, like you see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Beautiful Brie style. We talked about the Trilby and the Rare Bird. Can you kind of recap some of the other styles that you guys Yeah, have? definitely. Um, so in addition to like our regular pasteurized Buttercup Brie, we mm-hmm. also do every now and again a raw milk Brie which is everything that's great about Buttercup. Super grassy and buttery and delicious, but it has a little bit extra of like a funk to it because Mm -hmm. of the raw milk. I think it tastes like mushrooms that have been sauteed in butter, basically, which is... Remember that crazy wheel from Counterculture? I do remember. It was like this big and we just all dug into it. It was like a orgy of breed. Yeah, we uh, when we have a little bit too much milk, we'll, uh, we run out of molds, so we have to like improvise. And so sometimes we make there. these like massive breeze. This and, is real world cheese making. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> what are um, the what are the challenges of making a raw milk buttercup and bringing it to maturity? Sure. So I mean, you just have to kind of really keep an eye on it as it as it ages, and uh, 
you kind of just make it fatter, really. Okay. Um, and you're very gentle with it. Kind of manage the ratio a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Oh, right. Back to your question. Uh, other cheeses. We do Toma, which is like a raclette style. Um, we do a brand new cheese that's still sort of in its R&D stage called Betty Davis Eyes, Ooh, which what? is a, uh, a blue cheese, a large Whoa, format blue cheese. I can't wait. Oh, I didn't know you were wow. having blue. It's, uh, we, yeah, it's coming along really well. It's sort of getting to where we want it to be. We're going to have to have you back. Oh, please. Yeah. Like were, were there, were there fears about <laughs> aging blue in your, in your case? Well, yeah, we never really tried it before because we didn't, the, the blue gets basically on everything. So we're putting, very familiar. Yeah, of course. So putting <laughs> blue anywhere near like bloomy is like, no, no. But, uh, we recently had, we like switched our aging rooms around. So we have this like tiny closet size staging room and that's where we sequester the blue too so that okay. doesn't get on all the other rinds and what's the what's the rind of the blue like it is so crazy it literally has like uh it's like a rainbow of different colors and it's very modeled and you can tell that the geo is like wrinkled the entire thing oh nice oh, it's, okay. it's cool. how big of a wheel is it um they're usually about 10 pounds they're like wow, um almost like a nice. truckle size right. like a oh, taller stir like a coffee can yeah yes. yeah exactly Oh, I can't um, wait. When when will we get to try it? Yeah, seriously. Folks in the area. We have like cheese. two batches right now that are ready, actually. Oh, oh soon. Yeah. And raw milk also. It is raw milk, cool. yeah. Um, but this really cool like breakdown of the paste happens because it ripens from sort of the inside out. So the inside is like a little bit more chalky and the outside is like a squidgy kind of thing going on. Are you using a Stilton type of recipe or did you just sort of develop your own recipe for this? I think or? we vaguely modeled it after like Fond d'Ambert oh, okay. or Bleu d'Averne. Right. But nice. you know, improvising to be what it wants to be. with yeah, our own stuff. We had to like repurpose these other molds and like tape like them on top of each other to make the truckle oh, size. to get it tall enough yeah. for draining. Um, we didn't really know what was going to happen, but it seems to be turning out pretty well. Oh, that sounds exciting. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the Havila, which is like our Alpine style. Oh, that might be my go to. That's my favorite. Yeah. I could yeah. just eat this. It I'm, is well, endlessly like two year, three snackable. Year or whatever. It's amazing. Yeah. We don't usually release it until at least a year, but yeah. then we do like Havila Reserve. Yeah. It's like two years, three years. And they, those get really hard, huge crystals, very caramelly. Uh, butterscotchy, all that good stuff. So good. I have to tell you, I was, um, I think it was two years ago at the American Cheese Society conference tour after the Festival of Cheese, which is like the big show mm -hmm. where all the cheeses are presented, like 2000 cheeses are presented to all the attendees for you to try. And afterwards I was leaving and I ran into anybody in the cheese world knows this fella, Max McCalman. <laughs> he's a, he's a writer. He's a judge. Mm -hmm. He's just very well known in the cheese world. And he said, Sue, look what I have in my bag. I looked over and he had, he's like, I have the Havila. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> he pocketed it off the table. It was so special. Out of all the cheeses there, he oh, wanted wow. a wedge of the Havila. Well, so, and speaking of really ACS, nice to hear. I know Buttercup Brie has one. Yes. yes. Lawrenceville Jack has one. Yes. The first place and as well. Other? A Brutzy John. A Brutzy John. Yeah, which is essentially like a Jack recipe, but with a lot of different types of pepper in it. It really it's literally delicious. tastes like a slice of salami. Yeah. It's like salami ah. cheese. Yeah. And I love that the other cheesemaker, Paul, were like, what did you put in? He's like, I kind of can't remember. Because <laughs> that's Paul's like beautiful 
attribute. <laughs> yeah. It's like I just threw it all in. Paul and I are kind of similar in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's intuition. Yeah. Well, and it's great. Like, you know, I've known Paul for like a little while. I mean, Sue's known him for even longer. And he's worked at a lot of different dairies. Mm -hmm. And he's really done amazing things Mm -hmm. with Cherry Grove, Mm -hmm. including, you know, building a great team, obviously. Yeah, because it's a larger production list. Yeah. What do you guys make? Like 70,000 pounds a year there? 50,000 pounds of cheese? Closer to like 40 usually. 40,000. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good amount of cheese. That's a good amount of cheese, but it's less than I thought, actually. We're at like a really good number right now for like the amount of land we have, the amount of cows we want to have, and how the balance. Exactly. We've reached a really nice balance, I think. How many cows do you milk in peak time of summer? Probably about 30, oh, 30. 30 to 40, okay. something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. give or take, you know. Yeah. Depends on where they're having the babies, when they're not. Right. I get on it. their mood. <laughs> that's perfect. So, Sean, I want to ask you something that Sue asked me when Uh-oh. she was uh, asking me a few questions about how I got started. Mm-hmm. What are, in cheese making, what are your challenges? What are your biggest challenges? And then what are the things that come more easily to you? Hmm. That's a great question. Sue Miller, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Sue. Don't ask me that question. <laughs> what comes easy to me? I mean, I, I really like doing affinage and stuff like that. Uh, I really enjoy the repetitive kind of um, meditative aspects of it. I could wash cheese all day, every day. What is difficult? I think in the beginning, sticking to like recipes and stuff like precise, incredibly precise recipes Mm -hmm. was a bit difficult for me. Um, I'm the world's probably worst baker, but I can make really good salads and stuff like that. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Um, Until you I get relate to that. kind yeah. of like a feel for it and then you can right. sort of uh, waver a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Once you get like, it really, you need to develop the, the intuition before you can really start like improvising, you know? So in the beginning, measuring precise amounts of cultures and like, taking extremely detailed notes and all that stuff was kind of hard for me because that's not yeah. the type of person it, that I am. It kind of makes me think of my high school grammar teacher, English teacher, who said, you have to know the rules to break the rules. Yeah. Mm. That's a very good That's point. That's true. And isn't Wise. it great to hear Sean say he operates with intuition, which has come up with both of us. Yeah. We like too. talking about intuition yeah. and cheese making too, and how and powerful like, a tool it is mm-hmm. for yeah. guiding the process. Totally. And it is yeah. a powerful tool guiding the process. All right. On that note, <laughs> what keeps you up at night in cheese making? <laughs> Oh, basically, like I thought you meant like in life. No, like, no, no, existential no. question. Well, we can also <laughs> go to that. that. We can go to that. What keeps you up at night? Um, what scares the hell out of you? No, <laughs> I I often like before going to bed will rack my brain about like what did I forget to do today because I know that every day there's probably at least like ten things that I forgot to do. Like, oh my god, did I cap the tank or like, <laughs> yeah. did I refrigerate the rennet? Did I leave the cultures out? <laughs> All of that. Did I write my last flip? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Did I take the cheese out of the press? I don't even remember. Well, that's a really good point because even though um, I often say I'm like a glorified factory worker as a cheese maker, and I say that with love and honor, but there's just every day is the same, but it is absolutely not the same every Mm -hmm. day. And there are all these variables in play from the moment you walk in the door. Mm -hmm. And to hear you say that, that's like 
that's a good point. You know, yeah. did I take care of all the little dot, all the I's and cross mm-hmm. the T's? I think the cheese, the cheese making process, the cheese itself benefits so much from routine and consistency because mm-hmm. all those little things fall into line more easily if they're just habit. And I'll notice how like if I start the day an hour later or make some errand that's out, out of the ordinary you know, something gets forgotten. Like right. a somebody misstep. opens the door in the cheese. A, a misstep yeah. will create this ripple ripple effect, totally. which is you start you start feeling like a robot, and then it's hard to uh, change gears at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Which is why we drink a lot of really good beer and cider. <laughs> <laughs> well, we work hard, so we should what play, play hard. hard. Damn Earned straight. It. Yeah. Cheers Damn to straight. that. Cheers. <laughs> Nice having you, Sean. Oh, nice thank to you, thank you so much for coming over. It's my pleasure for sure. <laughs> Anytime, bring hey, more cheese. Tell us where everybody can find your cheese. So we sell to a few different local Whole Foods. We sell often at the Bruno Brothers, but we also have a really awesome um, farm store that anyone is welcome to come to whenever they want and pick up really awesome slices of cheese. That's and meat and eggs and local honey and stuff like that. Everything you need. Everything you need. I forget. Can you view the creamery from the shop? You can. There's actually a little uh, window that leads into the make room. All right. So everybody, you got to get over to the shop so you can <laughs> see Sean making cheese. Yeah. Will you wave? Will you promise to wave? Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. Knock on the window. Get my attention. We'll we'll send him a text making sure he put the rent away. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Oh, boy. (laughs) What a pleasure to have you today. Pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks. Collective Creamery is Stephanie Angstadt, Sue Miller, and Alex Jones. Jordan Heil produced the podcast, and Mike Lorenz wrote our music. You can hear him on Thursday nights at the Tired Hands Brew Cafe in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can learn more and subscribe to our cheese subscription at collectivecreamery.com.